Thank you, Lexi. Morning, folks. Uh, welcome to Walker Evangelical Church. Let me add mine to, uh, to Luke's. Uh, a special welcome if you are new or visiting. It's great to have you along today. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, would you please join with me as we pray and ask God to help us in this space? Uh, yeah, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do ask. We ask now that you would wake us up this morning, that whatever else is going on in our, in our minds or our hearts or our heads, we ask that you would steal them now, that we might be able to hear your word and to respond in kind. And we ask it for our good and for your glory. Amen. Um, <clears throat> if you're in the youth program, that's your chance to exit. Uh, by the way, just happy Mother's Day to, to all the mums out there. I do want to just tell you, mum, I, I especially arranged this so I could be at the front to, to uh, proclaim my undying love to you, greater than the others. Um, so happy Mother's Day. I really love you. <coughs> well, something happened this week <clears throat> that I'm struggling to come to terms with. I turned 40. <clears throat> Even saying it out loud makes me feel a little strange. And in fact, the only positive that I've been able to sort of salvage out of this horror so far is the fact that now I'm at least in the next age bracket in line for the COVID vaccination rollout. I mean, they've opened up to the 50 pluses recently, so I guess we're next 40 pluses, eh? Something to look forward to. Hooray. But in seriousness, this this thinking about COVID and vaccination rollouts, it actually really did get me thinking about another global pandemic that's been plaguing the people of the world peoples of the world for centuries, in fact. Actually, precisely since about the year Genesis 3. It's the pandemic of what I want to call spiritual ignorance, though in acute cases it may present more a spiritual arrogance. The alarming truth is that it affects every person ever born, and more alarmingly, those who have it are most often completely unaware they have it. And the real danger of this, folks, is that left untreated, it develops into full-blown hard-heartedness and has eternal consequences for the bearer. There's some good news, however, in all of this. The condition of spiritual ignorance or the, uh, the modern Western strain, sometimes called casual Christianity, the remedy is, it, well, it's absolutely curable. And the remedy is completely free and presently available to every single person on the planet, regardless of age, race, financial status, whatever minority box you may uh, fill. Ticket. It's available for you. It's called the gospel of Jesus. It's called the gospel of Christ crucified for sin, Christ risen to offer new and everlasting life, ready and willing to forgive and say to the utmost those who know they need a saviour. It's a good solution. But like other vaccinations or antibiotic regimens, you must follow through with the entire course of the treatment because to stop halfway or to alter it in any fashion only exacerbates the underlying symptoms and increases your future resistance to the genuine gospel and its benefits. Friends, you know this global pandemic? I mean, it sounds a little comical, even silly when I put it like this, but it's a serious issue. And I raise it here because spiritual ignorance or apathy or arrogance or whatever you want to call it, it is a real thing. It is a scary thing. And it does affect, I want to say, a huge percentage of our global population, probably and potentially likely people in this room today. I don't say that lightly. 
It's a condition that raises its head continually in Scripture time and time again, and it's right here in Luke 3. So what I want us to do today is I want us to have your Bible open at Luke 3. If you don't own a Bible, you do now because there's one at the back. Put your name in it. I want us to open up to Luke 3, and I want us to unpack this text, focusing on the ministry of John the Baptist to help you see both the problem and the solution to this spiritual ignorance, this pandemic that has been plaguing generations. There are some outlines on a point. Uh, so there are some points on an outline if you want one at the back to take notes. But let's dive right in. Point one is just this: the first thing I want you to notice about spiritual ignorance about John the Baptist's ministry in it is that both are prophesied. Both are prophesied in Scripture. What, what I mean is John's arrival on the scene at this point in Luke three at this time in history is the exact fulfillment of an Old Testament prophetic or of Old Testament prophetic expectations not one but many old testament expectations to deal with the problem we actually heard this and saw this already in the angel's message to Zechariah we heard it a couple of weeks ago here at church it was when the angel came to Zechariah and to tell him about the son he would have with Elizabeth in fact flick back over a couple of pages look at it there in Luke 1 16 and 17 it won't come up on your screen you've got to go there in your bibles Speaking of the child to be born, the angel says to Zechariah, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people prepared for the Lord. Now that's the expectation. That's the expectation we ought to have as we start to meet John in the flesh in Luke 3. In line with the angelic expectation, we should expect John to be getting people ready for the arrival of the Lord by pointing out the spiritual ignorance that that plagues them and turning people back. And more significantly, significantly than that, did you realize that, the, or did the angel's words sound any way familiar from other from elsewhere in the Bible? Yeah, they, they should have, because what we heard there was the angel quoting Malachi to Zechariah in relation to John. And this is super significant because Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets. It's up to this point in Luke's gospel. It's been 400 years of silence from God. Uh, from God. Generations have come and gone. Empires have risen and fallen. The Persians got knocked over by the Greeks. The Greeks got rolled by the Romans. The Romans are now in power. Israel itself is presently under Roman occupation, governmental control. Israel is a busted nation of people confused and confounded far short of what they were under the the glory days of King David, when they were a powerhouse in the region. And yet the promises of God are still lingering somewhere in their collective consciences. The promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, for example, about a people, about a land, about a blessing to all nations, they haven't forgotten this entirely. And the promises that God then made, the subsequent promises to, to King David in 2 Samuel 7 about a forever king from his line, They're still holding out hope for this to come. And the promises of God further sharpened through the prophets, like Isaiah, who Luke will will quote a minute, about a Messiah figure, a special God-anointed ruler who would deliver Israel, later sharpening again into the expectation that God himself would come and shepherd his sheep in Ezekiel 34. A visitation referred to by the Jews as the great and awesome day of the Lord. Awesome literally means fearful. You realize that? It is awful. Full of awe. (laughs) 
This, in fact, was God's last message to Israel before the long silence. In fact, it'll come up on your screen, this one. Check it out with me in Malachi 4, verse 5. God is speaking through Malachi when he says this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Do you see it? Do you hear it here? It's exactly what the angel told Zechariah in Luke 1.17. Their son would be the precise fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. You see, what's happening here is John the Baptist is God's first word spoken for 400 years to Israel, and he picks up right off where he, where he left, sending John the Baptist to get Israel ready for the great and fear-inducing arrival of God. That is John the Baptist's role. As I said, Luke fills it out even further as he quotes from Isaiah 40. You see it there in uh, verses 4 to 6. I won't read it, but Luke quoting Isaiah here is another instance where he's trying to ensure that we too are listening up. In fact, it's in this way, I think, a helpful sort of image is John the Baptist is a bit like the trumpet fanfare that signaled the arrival of royalty. I mean, you've seen this sort of thing at royal weddings or, or other royal official engagements, right? All the dignitaries start arriving, the crowd are watching, the trumpet fanfare kicks off. I don't know how it goes, you know. You know, you get the, you know what I'm talking about, right? Now, what are the trumpeters doing when they do that, when they start playing that fanfare? I mean, they're making an awful lot of noise. They're definitely trying to attract people's attention, no doubt about that. But are they trying to get people's attention to themselves? No way. Now, the trumpet sound is the signal that someone greater is about to arrive. The most important person at the party, they're about to walk into view. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. He is a one-man trumpet fanfare that people have been waiting for more than 400 years to hear. To signal the arrival of the king. And the implication for them is the same as it is for us now. Listen up. Listen up, because what is about to follow is of supreme importance. Now's not the time for slumber or sleep. Tune in. In fact, it leads us to our second point there on your outline. It's the second thing you need to see about John the Baptist as he came as a fulfillment of prophecy in and of himself to to diagnose spiritual ignorance and to get people ready for the coming, the visitation of God to his people. How exactly did he prepare them? I mean, what does it look like to get people ready? I mean, we know that he come baptizing. He sort of, his name gives it away a little. John the Baptist, what's he going to be? A butler? No. But was his baptism, was it just a way of making sure that people had washed behind their ears, you know, had a, had a good scrub and smelled nice for the coming Christ? Again, probably helpful, but not the primary importance. No, no, John the Baptist came to prepare people And his means of preparing people was primarily by preaching a pointy proclamation of repentance. Now try and say that ten times fast. You can't, don't you? No, seriously, the second thing I want you to notice is that the primary mission of John the Baptist was a preaching mission. It was a preaching mission of repentance and it was super pointy. Sorry for the illustration, it's the only one I could think of. But the reason it's pointy is because much like, well, treating spiritual ignorance is a lot like lancing a boil. It's painful, it's necessary, and you need something sharp to get it started. 
In fact, have a look at it there as Luke describes it in verse 3. Luke tells us that he, that's John, went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 7, we hear John speak for the first time to the crowds, the very crowds who are coming out to be baptized him. And what does he say? Oh, it's great to have you along. I hope you've enjoyed your... No, he said, you brood of vipers, you big bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Now, that's an interesting opening for a preacher to his congregation. One I've dreamed of doing every now and again. Right, you bunch of so-and-sos. It's tempting, but it seems to cut against the grain of the collective wisdom of all public speakers. It's not the way to start a, you know, start a sermon, so to speak. So why does John start this way then? Is he just completely obtuse? Well, again, there's several things to notice here, but I want you to notice it's the attitude that John is critiquing. It's halfway through verse 8, and it's spiritual ignorance in all its non-glory. Here presented as the attitude of religious complacency by the Jews. It's the attitude of people who say one thing with their mouth, but believe or do an entirely different thing in their actions. For the Jews, spiritual ignorance was clothed in the attitude of supposing that their peace with God, that their friendship in favour with God was based primarily on their ancestry. They fell into the trap of thinking that because they were born as Hebrews, because they drew their physical lineage from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that automatically made them right with God. No matter what they did, no matter how they lived, even who they worshipped. I mean, look at how John calls it out. Halfway through verse 8, pick it up with me. What does he say to them? He says, do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Did you hear that? That's super pointy. That's a real slap in the face. That is a wake-up call and a half to a Jew. But do you realize how stupid their attitude is? This is why John is speaking this way. He's trying to wake them up from their slumber. He's trying to rattle the cage of their spiritual ignorance and their religious snobbery and help them to realize that this is what is keeping them captive from the real transformative relationship that God is calling them to through repentance. In this way, I think John the Baptist is a bit like that person you know who just calls a spade a spade. You know the type of personality, they're not looking to mince words or tickle your ears or plump up your self-esteem pillow. But they're not trying to be jerks either. They tell it like it is, what's and all, because, well, at least in John the Baptist's case, he's doing it out of a genuine love and zeal both for God and God's people. John the Baptist takes seriously his role before God to get people ready. And he really does want to make sure people are ready Therefore, he says pointy things to snap them out of that spiritual ignorance, to make sure they're listening. And friends, if I can apply that here for us for a minute, I want to ask the question, is it true, is it true of you? Are you willing to have a pointy conversation with, pe- with people, with someone, because you love them? Where you speak up for the truth of the gospel or you tear down the lies of our culture, not because you're an insensitive jerk, but because you genuinely don't want to see people skipping down the road to hell and judgment unchallenged. Now just take that in for a minute. Listen up because I'm speaking personally now to anyone here who knows someone that has not taken seriously the gospel of Jesus. 
If you know someone in your family, in your workplace, in your friendship group, who's caught in a kind of spiritual ignorance that either assumes they're okay with God because they're really just a nice person doing their best or because they don't believe in God and therefore they aren't worried about what comes next. I mean, do you know anyone like that? I assume I'm talking to everybody. And I want to encourage you, take a leaf out of John the Baptist's playbook here and love God's honour enough and love your friend's eternal future enough to have a pointy conversation. To speak to them about Jesus, to share the good news of salvation, the free offer of forgiveness to those who are humble enough to recognise they need it. Not because there's a guarantee that they'll listen. And certainly not because there's a guarantee that they'll appreciate you for it. They may not. Another aspect of John the Baptist's ministry that I won't go into, he was persecuted for his preachiness. He got locked up in prison for it. It may cost you something similar. But if people are determined to ignorantly or arrogantly defy God's word and insist on standing before him in judgment on their own, then let them not do it while you silently sit on. Too nervous, too afraid, let's be honest, more often too concerned about your own reputation to actually speak up and say something. Charles Spurgeon said it this way once, and I really appreciate it, and it gets me every time. He said, if sinners be damned, then at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Now, can you feel the sense of urgency and the passion and the deep concern in Spurgeon's words there? He knows the blight of spiritual ignorance in his day and he hated it. And his passion and his zeal to see it dealt with was fueled by the same spirit that was urging John the Baptist along to. Now, is it in you? Let me ask you again, the passion and that zeal to see people snapped out of spiritual ignorance, apathy and arrogance, is it in you too? Paul said to the Corinthians that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Amen, I believe it. Equally, I'd say that no one who has the Spirit can be unconcerned for the lost. The two are inseparable. So don't repress your concern, don't dampen your zeal, don't excuse your desire for people to hear the gospel to be saved because you're too busy. Give me a break. Or because you think you don't know all the answers like that saved anyone ever. Rather prayerfully, willfully, intentionally fan into that flame the spark, however smouldering it may be presently, fan into flame that which knows the gospel must be made known and that for some people in your life you're the only person they'll have the opportunity to hear it from don't sit loosely with that don't sit comfortably with that don't remain ambivalent to that weighty truth friends feel the full weight of it and for their sake and for God's honor open your mouth to speak Don't speak of your own poor example. That is the one thing I will never do. I'm not calling people to come and follow me in my stupidity. I'm telling them, come and follow me as I follow Christ, the one who actually can save. It's Christ alone.
Of course, there's a flip side of this application, friends, as well. It's not just the, the case of whether you're willing enough to have the pointy conversation about spiritual ignorance, but equally, are you willing to hear them directed towards you? What I mean by that is, are you willing to listen to a pointy person who in love and for your good speaks up because they care enough? Do you know how hard that is to do? That is not the easier thing to do. The path of least resistance is always to do nothing, to say nothing, to, to let's just keep the status quo, let's paper over it, let's remain with the facade, I'm comfortable with that. No, no, no. But for their good, for the honour of God, because you love, are you willing to speak up? And if you're squirming a little bit in your seat at the moment, then I, I hope you realise I am too. <laughs> I hope you realise it's not because I'm trying to be harsh up here, but because I take seriously and I want you to take seriously the full implication of Jesus' lordship. Don't pretend it doesn't matter. Don't pretend it, do- it doesn't affect you personally. It can, it must. Someone once said to me, and I don't even remember who it was now, but they said, if, it might have been you, Pete. I'll give it to you. They said, if you're a Christian and you're not concerned for the lost, the chances are you are one. Let me ask you again, is that you? Does that same burning passion, zeal, concern for those who do not know the good news of Jesus, is that yours? It's actually to sign up to live with a level of stress in your life. In in an age where we're trying to de-stress, in an age where we're trying to get rid of all that sort of stuff, that I don't want to have this sort of rattling around my head at night. You know what I'm asking you to actually sign up for that? Because... You cannot look around the world and be comfortable with the, 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 the status quo. And if you're a Christian, you're lining up, you're signing up to be concerned, to bear the, the weight of concern for those in your sphere of influence. You've, you've got to feel it. Is it you? Don't leave here today unsure. Speak up. You know, if this is rattling your cage, grab someone. Talk and pray with them after the surface. Do whatever is necessary necessary to feel the weight of that question, but don't shrug it off unanswered. <laughs> Be willing to have and hear pointy conversations for God's glory and your good. In fact, it leads us to our third point about John the Baptist and about the problem of spiritual ignorance and arrogance. It's not only that both were prophesied, It's not only that John was pointy in preaching, but look at this. It's that John the Baptist was production-focused. In his efforts to see spiritual ignorance identified and dealt with, John didn't care for proclamations. He wanted to see the product. Do you know what I mean by that? Look at it with me there in verses 8 and 9 again. John addressing the crowd. He says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, it's a little bit chilling, isn't it, to read? If you read it with your eyes open, it's, it's a little scary. But hear it rightly. You see, John is not preaching here a works-based forgiveness. He's not coming with the message of you know, doing more. It's not the, the solution to spiritual ignorance. 
In fact, we've already heard that in verse 3. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, not a baptism of more law-keeping or performance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, forget that. But genuine repentance implies with it a desire and a willingness to change. You cannot separate the two. The word repentance literally means to turn around. It means to stop going this way and start going that way. In this way, repentance can never simply just be a proclamation, something you do with your words alone. But something, repentance is something that must produce an effect. In fact, I think this is where people often stop short of taking the full course of gospel medication. It's sadly where many people and many churches even try to alter the the gospel antidote to spiritual ignorance. They do it by ignoring or minimizing sin. They do it by cheapening grace. They do it by disconnecting the command to change. It's that kind of false Christianity where you can claim Jesus is your saviour and completely ignore him as king. It's where you can just claim that you're sorry, but actually never really repent or change. And it's a Christianity that is absolutely unknown in the pages of the Bible. I mean, do you realize the difference between being sorry and repenting? See, the scary thing is it's possible to be sorry and not repent. You realize that, don't you? It's possible to make poor decisions and to sin against God or sin against another person. It's possible to do that and recognize the guilty feelings, acknowledge the sorrow, even utter the phrase, I'm sorry. But unless you change your actions, that's not repentance. Unless you turn around and intentionally make a different decision about how you live in the future, it's not repentance. It's not to say perfection is the thing that is necessary now. But to say sorry and keep going the same direction, that's madness. My favourite stupid illustration of this is, have you ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber? All right, it's a bit of a throwback. Luke, you won't remember this. Um, <coughs> It's where Harry and Lloyd, Lloyd takes over driving the car, the, you know, the dog car, and he heads all the way, one whole night, I don't know, eight, ten hours of driving across the country in the wrong direction. They go into Aspen, they find themselves in the desert. And Harry wakes up and says, what have you done? And Lloyd says, I'm sorry. And then he gets back in the car and keeps going the same road. No, he doesn't. No, that wouldn't be repentance. That would just be sorry. What does he do? Well, they sell the dog car and they get a mini bike and they drive the other way. But the point is they turn around. You can't say sorry and keep traveling the same direction. The idea of repentance is to acknowledge guilt and fault and turn around. Again, are you feeling the pinch a little bit here? Because I am. The axe is at the root, says John. And God expects his trees to produce fruit. Not to earn their treeness, but to evidence their treeness. Are you feeling the pinch? You can tell that some in the crowd listening to John felt the pinch that day. You can tell that some of them are starting to wake up from their spiritual ignorance because they ask the right question in response. Verse 10, what is it? What should we do then? That's the right response. What should we do then? 
And John answers specifically, what does repentance look like? What does the right treatment of spiritual ignorance look like in word and deed? Well, to summarize John's response in verses 11 through 14, if you have material possessions, share it with those who don't. If you're a tax collector, act with integrity. Don't collect more than you ought. If you're a soldier, don't lie or bully people. Be content with your pay. And in each example, John not only hints at the obvious fault lines and temptation points for each particular scenario, but then the right response to inform, well, to, to correct spiritual ignorance in a variety of its forms. Instead of greed, generosity. Instead of dishonesty and discontentment, truthfulness with contentment. But the question you need to ask yourself is how would John address you in your specific life circumstances presently? Where are the specific temptations and fault lines in your own life that need to be repented of, that need to be changed to ensure that spiritual ignorance isn't building resistance in your life? You know, I can't answer that for you. You need to join the dots on that one yourself. But i tell you what I can do. I can give you some starting thoughts from some of my own stupid mistakes. Let me give you three. Let me give you three from just distinct areas or different phases of my life. Here's the first one. As a manual laborer, for years, the temptation for me as a claiming Christian was to be just like everyone else. Not to stick out too much. Just go with the flow. If that meant swearing like a sailor or telling dirty jokes or being as lazy as possible, so be it. When really what I should have been doing was repenting of that stupidity and start to be the influencer rather than the influenced. Is that you? As a teacher, the temptation for me was always to be busy with schoolwork, to be effectively, though not in theory, but effectively anchoring my identity and my value to my work performance and to allow it to dictate what I didn't have time for. Bible study, personal godliness, chief among those that dropped off the list. Now, there's lots of teachers in the congregation here today. There's lots of teachers in there. If that resonates with you, repent. Repent of that kind of spiritual ignorance. Change your thinking and anchor your identity in Christ. Letting that transformation of how you let letting that transform rather how you use your time. Not so that you become a bad teacher, mind you, but so that you make the time for the things that God values as of primary importance. Growing in your steady knowledge, love, and service of Him. And now I'm in a different phase of life as a pastor. Do you think there's less need for me to constantly take my spiritual temperature to reflect and repent and change? Of course not. I've got it all sorted now. No, no. You know, this is, I think this is one of the hard truths. I'm more aware of my sinful stupidity. I'm more aware of it now than I ever was. You know, one of the areas I was reflecting on this week is I often feel like I'm walking the tightrope tight in ministry falling off in both directions, either into pride on one side or despair in the other. And that happens all because I'm prone to lose sight of God's primacy in the work that I'm doing. And in my own spiritual ignorance, I begin trusting in my own strength and ability. And where does that lead me? Pride in what I'm doing, despair in what I haven't. You know, I often need to repent of that. I need to re- recalibrate, to lift my eyes and uh, to a better, well, the better reality of God's sovereign power despite my failings. And then I need to transfer those into real changes in the way I work and the way I think 
and the way I act. Now, there's just three, just, just three quick examples. And you realize I haven't even touched... I haven't even touched on the examples of spiritual ignorance and opportunity for repentance and change as a husband or a father or a son or a brother or an uncle or a friend. How many different hats do you wear? But I can assure you that there's space and there's need to repent and change in every one of those areas. And if you're honest with yourself, you're no different. But like I said, you've got to join your own dots. So what are we going to do with this, folks? I mean, there's a sense in which I haven't in touched on the last five verses and I'm going to have to leave them be. But what are you going to do with this now? You see, you can come to church today and you can hear a message like this. You can hear God's word read and then you can treat it like a dose of antibiotics. Just take half of it in. Pretend that showing up or hearing it alone or even nodding and looking pensive, you know, a few of those particular points, mm. I'll find that helps. Bite the thing. You can pretend that that's doing something for you, something good, when in fact all you're doing is building future resistance to the repentance and change that the gospel offers. In fact, no, scratch that. Building future resistance to the repentance and change that God in the gospel demands. Don't treat this like an antibiotics top-up. Don't do that today. Don't settle for spiritual ignorance. Don't be content with casual Christianity if, if, as if that's a thing. Instead, take your medicine. Hear again the generous call of God himself just as he spoke in the time of John the Baptist. Humbly repent for the forgiveness of sins. Humbly repent of your spiritual ignorance in all its forms and instead seek God's power to produce in you the fruit fitting for someone who's ready and willing to meet him when he returns again. And know this, friends, please know this. We've got every need, we've got every opportunity and we've got every confidence that God hears the pleas of those who humbly ask for help because he has answered us already through Jesus, the full and final solution to spiritual ignorance. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, it is right that we would stop and take stock, that we would reflect and we ask that you would help us to do so honestly before ourselves and before you, to actually look through our lives, to filter through every aspect of our lives and find the spaces that not just might be there, that are there of spiritual ignorance, that causes us to respond less than we ought to the magnificence of what you've done for us in Christ. Please, Father, by your Spirit now, change us, so transform us to be people who are constantly feeling the weight and the burden and the joyful stress of desiring that not just others be saved, but that you would be maturing us in Christ for your glory. And we pray it for our good, in Jesus' name.